1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it looks a lot like 2018. Felix Tshisekedi again won the presidency with a thumping majority, but the opposition says the vote was rigged. We ask why this time is different and what it means for Congo's long-suffering people. And the film The Wicker Man once seemed like a cautionary tale about the perils of observing ancient superstitions. Today, as the number of self-identified pagans is sharply rising, the film looks like an advertisement for them. First up, though, France's president, Emmanuel Macron, has had a pretty turbulent second term in office. His relentless push for reforms to the pension system hasn't been received very well. Ditto immigration laws. He leads a minority government, his popularity rating has been sliding, and he faces a growing challenge in the form of a resurgent far right the National Rally, and its newish president, Jordan Bardella.
2: 130 voix, soit Jordan Bardella.
1: All of this suggests a need for a fresh start, which, in French politics, often means giving the boot to the Prime Minister, the chief policy implementer and runner of government. Yesterday, that fresh start got started.
2: Emmanuel Macron, the French president, has switched prime minister, as French presidents have the constitutional right to do.
1: Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief.
2: And Elizabeth Bon, who has been in the job for little over 18 months, has been replaced with a new face. And it's not as surprising that she has gone as who is coming in to take her job. And that is the youngest prime minister that France has ever seen, Gabriel Attal.
1: And tell me then about Mr. Attal.
2: Well, he's most recently been education minister. He's very much seen as a rising star in French politics. Before that, he held another ministerial job. He's only 34 years old. So that is younger than even Emmanuel Macron was in 2017, when he won election as president for the first time. But youth in Attal's case doesn't mean no experience. He's also been budget minister, and he has been the spokesman for the French government. And that was the moment when he really became a household name in France because he has a very fluent, telegenic presence on camera and in public debates.
3: Et donc c'est pour ça, moi, que j'appelle évidemment la jeune génération euh, à aller voter d'abord, quel que soit le candidat, parce que, une fois, on est en démocratie. J'ai he a voté,
2: also happens to be gay. That is something that he spoke about publicly for the first time about six years ago.
1: And what about his his politics, though? Where does he sit?
2: Well, I think that he is really, in some ways, a mini-Macron. He has a background as a socialist local councillor, actually, and he worked as an advisor to a former socialist health minister, but very much from the social democratic, that's to say, the sort of moderate wing of the Socialist Party. But he also appeals to the right, And that was exactly what Macron's setting up of En Marche back in 2016 was all about. It was about being neither on the left nor the right, it was covering a broad center. So when he was education minister, for example, Attal banned a form of Muslim garment that's known as the abaya on the basis of the French secular rules, which are very strict about new religious neutrality in schools, but it was seen as something that did appeal to the right. So he has this ability to both appeal to the left and to the right in a very Macronesque kind of way.
1: And what is it that you think Mr. Macron is trying to achieve by putting Mr. Atoll in that post?
2: I think he wants to open a new chapter. You know, last year, 2023, was a difficult year. There were protests, there were riots, there was a chaotic end-of-year parliamentary debate about immigration and a piece of legislation that got through only at the very last moment. And I think what Macron is hoping to do is to turn the page, reset the government, and also benefit from Attal's extraordinary level of popularity. Of course, that may change once he's in the job, but he, in a recent poll, came out as the most popular politician in France. He is more popular even than the two leaders of the far-right national uh, rally, which used to be known as the National Front in France. I'm talking there about Marine Le Pen, but also Jordan Bardella, who's the 28-year-old leader of the party going into the European elections. Now, why does that matter? Because in June, The whole of Europe holds these elections, and at the moment, Marine Le Pen's party is way out there in the lead. And I think that what Macron is hoping is that having a new fresh face, energy, youth on his side in government will help give his party a boost ahead of those elections.
1: So this is nothing more than a little preemptive electoral calculus.
2: Well, I think that Macron is actually wanting at the same time to push ahead with the reforms that he's doing to try and modernise France. I mean, he has promised to bring about full employment, for example. Now, France has still got deployment at about 7%. And if it needs to get down to 5%, that's a lot of work trying to improve training tighten up benefit rules and make sure that there are enough jobs being created in the French economy. Those are not going to be easy, and nor are other things like bringing down public spending. So I think you are looking at what could be a difficult time for Gabriel Attal once the sort of honeymoon period and the golden glow, which is currently surrounding him in France, begins to wear off.
1: And you described him as a kind of mini Macron. Is it your view that what the president has done here is effectively appoint or anoint his successor?
2: Well, it's a difficult question, that one, because the election for the next president of France isn't until 2027. And constitutionally, Macron cannot run again. You can't run for more than two consecutive turns. At the same time, the way I see it is that, you know, Macron likes, I think, to test out potential successes and see how they do on the job. And the fact that he's put Atal in the prime minister's job, but the fact that he is now going to see whether he's got what it takes to do what is a very difficult and often thankless job in France is a way of making him or giving him the chance to sort of show what he's got. And it's a way of testing him, of giving him a chance to prove himself. And I think you have to now add the name Atal to the list of potential would-be successors to Macron in the race to try and defeat Marine Le Pen in 2027.
1: Sophie, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thanks, Jason. Always good to talk to you.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on.
1: The Democratic Republic of Congo now has a confirmed winner of its presidential election, Felix Tshisekedi. Again, yesterday the Constitutional Court ratified the landslide result. Speaking after the preliminary results, Mr. Tshisekedi described his country as a land of hope, a land of future.
2: That the Congo
1: Let's get to work and make our nation shine, he said. Easier said than done. Congo is mineral-rich and youthful, but a staggering number of its hundred million people live in poverty. And, just as happened in 2018, a vote has put Mr. Chisakedi in office amid lots of election-day messiness and disputed results.
3: Provisional results from the election showed that Felix Chisakedi won handsomely, with 73% of the tally.
1: Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist.
3: That margin of victory was a surprise for most people, I think, even including his own party. And in the East, where there's been a long-standing conflict and death and displacement has got worse, he seemed to get 90% of the vote. The opposition is, perhaps unsurprisingly, crying foul.
1: And Kinley, we spoke to you ahead of the poll and you expressed some concerns about how things might go. How did they go in the end?
3: Well, election day itself, or perhaps one should say election days in the Congo, were extremely chaotic. On the first day of voting that meant to be the only day of voting, about 60% of polling stations opened late, according to one observer group. You know, millions of Congolese waited for hours and hours to vote. Of course, many, many people gave up and went home, unable to vote. Observers also said that in about a third of polling stations, voting just stopped for 30 minutes, you know, because the machines broke down or the papers weren't there after all. And as I alluded to, the election was meant to be just one day, December 20th, but in some places it went on for six more days. And perhaps most worryingly, some 11,000 polling stations out of a total of about 75,000 just didn't open at all. That, that's sort of one in six polling stations. And that, of course, has left many people disenfranchised, some of them angry, and contributed to a pretty low turnout of 43%. That's the lowest since Congo returned to elections in 2006.
1: And when we last spoke to you, in addition to all those concerns, you told us about things like incomplete electoral rolls, voter cards are easily smudged to become illegible. In the end, though, taking all of this into account, what do you make of the opposition's assertion
3: that this was a rigged election? It's difficult to assess because there's just not that much independent information out there. The EU had an observation mission that was meant to help monitor what was happening in the election, and they were basically denied the option to operate at full scale by the government. There is an influential domestic observation mission run by the Catholic and Protestant churches that send out you know, a large number of observers to different polling stations. And they said, pretty crucially, that in their parallel count one candidate was far in advance, and that is widely understood to be Felix Cusackini. So they're, in effect, saying, despite everything, he still won. That may reassure plenty of people that the fraud that may have happened wasn't at such a scale to kind of change the winner of the presidential election. Of course, the opposition doesn't agree. You know, they say there's still cheating that may not have been spotted by that observer mission that would have been missed by the parallel count, There are these unverified, we should say, videos out there showing people in private homes somehow in possession of a voting machine, you know, casting vote after vote for the president. But the opposition hasn't provided detailed evidence of widespread ballot stuffing to back up its dispute of both the official results and, in effect, this parallel count.
1: I suppose there is still room for the thought that Mr. Tisekedi, in the end, actually ran a good campaign and won
3: it. That's certainly what his supporters would say. They would say, look, the economy's been doing well in the last few years. Mr. Csiccati had decreed education and primary schools free. These sort of helped his popularity. It's also worth noting that the opposition was really divided, and the state television and radio gave lots of pretty favorable coverage to the president. And Mr. Csiccati also boasted, I think pretty importantly, alliances with sort of regional bigwigs, in some cases warlords, that helped deliver the votes in regions where he might not have been so strong. And then he also made a claim repeatedly without evidence that his main rival, Moise Katumbe, was a foreigner and that he was allied with Rwanda. And that was very powerful because Rwanda is allegedly behind rebels that are causing havoc in the east of the Congo. So this claim really helped Mr. Chisakedi cast himself as a defender of Congo's sovereignty and pride. All of that probably did help his popularity, at least to some degree.
1: And in any case, we find ourselves again on the other side of a disputed election. What happens now? What chance that the opposition's claims are investigated, the, the, the poll is rerun or returned?
3: The opposition's certainly very angry. You know, one candidate, Martin Friulu, called this a new coup d'etat. Most of the major opposition candidates have, however, said they won't be appealing it to the constitutional court because they don't think that that is independent in itself. So there's anger and dispute in the opposition. That's been heightened by the fact the Electoral Commission itself has admitted that there seems to have been fraud and violence at other levels of the election. There were also legislative elections, and they've ruled ineligible now as over 80 candidates, including three ministers and four governors, for their part in fraud and violence. But the Electoral Commission says, oh, that that didn't affect the presidential election. So the chances now of the opposition overturning this are pretty slim. They've tried to call for protests, but they've been met with pretty violent response from the police. Mr. Kutumbi, the main opposition candidate and runner-up, had his house surrounded by the military this week. They were eventually withdrawn, but you know the message seems to be pretty clear. Foreign nations, you know, the West, for example, are probably more interested in stability in Congo and in getting access to Congo's minerals, and so... The idea that the outside world might sort of step in in some form is also pretty unlikely.
1: And we've spoken before the election and at other times about the enormous potential of Congo, and yet its people tend to be suffering. Where does this election leave them then if it's going to stand as it is?
3: Congo is in many ways a rich country. It does have extraordinary quantities of minerals that are critical for the green transition. But despite this, 60% of its 100 million citizens are really poor. And it's got this war going in the East that has displaced some 7 million people. Congolese now, they are left hoping that Mr. Chisikete does better in his second term than he did in his first. That there is real action, you know, to pull people out of poverty, to end this conflict in the East. But Mr. Chisikete's record is mixed at best. And so the prospects don't look that good.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Kenley.
3: Thank you.
4: When King Charles III sent out his coronation invitations last year, he put a picture of a green man on them, this leafy-faced symbol that you sometimes see carved on church walls. And there was lots of discussion in newspapers of what the king might have been trying to tell us.
1: Nicholas Barber writes about culture for The Economist.
4: Was our new monarch hinting that he was, in fact, a pagan? Some people said, was he perhaps referring to the Green Man Inn? in The Wicker Man, a classic British film which has just turned 50. Now, most royal watchers agreed that His Majesty is probably just a lover of the great outdoors and had not succumbed to Wicker mania, but The Wicker Man is a massively influential film, so you never know.
1: I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul freeze thy
4: young blood. The Wicker Man follows a policeman, Sergeant Howie, who is played by Edward Woodward with a flawless Scottish accent, who travels to a Hebridean island to investigate reports of a missing girl. Now, the islanders are friendly enough, uh, more than friendly, in the case of the barmaid of the Green Man, who's played by Britt Eklund, but they're also quite evasive and sneaky, much to the frustration of the buttoned-up Sergeant Howie. i have a young girl. Where is Rowan Morrison? He- The one thing that is clear to him is that the locals have abandoned christianity and now worship the old gods as they call it under the tutelage of a jovial aristocrat lord summer isle who's played by christopher lee the islanders are pagans and they're proud of it they love to dance around the maypole and so on whereas sergeant howie is a very strict devout christian so this state of affairs troubles him almost as much as the girl's disappearance The unspoiled setting and the pagan rituals and the mysterious atmosphere all helped to define what we now call folk horror. There were two other British cult favourites, Witchfinder General in 1968, with the tranquillity of rural England shattered by civil war, evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land. And The Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971. When the grave of the devil is disturbed by the plough, the satanic essence of evil wreaks violent and revolting revenge. And together they established this genre of stories which find something eerie and menacing, yet actually quite alluring in remote villages with wild landscapes and ancient heathen rites. For this genre, of folk horror has come back into fashion lately. Films such as *Ennis Main*, *Midsummer*,
0: *Christian* says you've got this special week planned.
4: *The Witch* and *Alex Garland's Men*. Something
2: happened. My husband went upstairs to our balcony and let himself go.
4: They all owe a lot to the Wicker Man. But the great thing about it is that despite this horror label it's not obviously a horror film there's a shocking climax but before that it's more of a detect mystery but it's very funny as well in its sly way so it's actually almost a fish out of water comedy for a lot of the time but more than anything the wicker man is a very affectionate and detailed and thoroughly researched picture of an idyllic neo-pagan community the Islanders aren't these devil worshippers, they're not conducting occult rituals in the dead of night or anything like that. They're all cheerful, liberated, happy people practicing their faith in broad daylight, whether they're treating a girl's sore throat by popping a lied toad in her mouth or dancing naked around a bonfire. The film has this breezy respect for the Islanders' beliefs, which is one reason why it's so resonant today. Neo-paganism has been a hot topic lately, and not just because of King Charles. There are lots of festivals that are clearly influenced by the Wicker Man, and in the census of 2021, 74,000 people identified as pagan, up by 17,000 since the previous census. Meanwhile, for the first time ever, less than half of the citizens of England and Wales describe themselves as Christian. Sergeant Harry would be appalled by this, but it is understandable the world being so frenetic and so dependent on technology and the climate crisis being so urgent, you can see the nostalgic appeal of traditions which are embedded in nature and the countryside and the changing of the seasons, all these things which we now know are so fragile. And that's really what The Wicker Man is about. So many people you talk to who identify as pagans will say that the film really spoke to them. Of course... 50 years ago on one level it was probably intended as a warning against these weird arcane and and rather licentious superstitions, but the film is just so fun that today it comes across almost as an advert for them, almost a, a welcoming beginner's guide. Of course you have to overlook the human sacrifice, but overall you may feel that frolicking around a scenic island with Lord Summerisle and his fellow islanders is a lot more attractive than heading back to the mainland with stuffy Sergeant Howie.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. It's just a few days out from a presidential election with the potential for global consequences in Taiwan. This week, my colleagues on Drum Tower, our subscriber-only show on China, ask whether the election really is a choice between war and peace, as some candidates are saying. To listen, get yourself a subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus, so you can hear that, The Weekend Intelligence, and all of our award-winning shows. Do it. And we'll see you back here tomorrow.